Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For those of you too young to remember this player, or at least remember this player in their golden prime, let's try and paint the picture. This is what basketball supremacy, what basketball goatdom, looks like. So imagine a basketball star who defies position. Technically, they're a two-guard, but with the capacity to play anywhere on the court. They marry an explosive first step with a reliable jumper. Points come fast and furious, but there's also a capacity to play lockdown defense. There was plenty of style, but it was scaffolded by substance. This player's real asset, though, was a blazing fury, an ambition, an unrivaled work ethic that only increased in lockstep with the attention they got. Imagine the embodiment of the cliché, arriving to the gym before everyone else and being the last to leave. And then when the game started, there was an intensity illuminating their face like a headlight. To this player, every slight real or concocted or just stupid, served as a source of motivation. And beating you wasn't enough. Their goal was to break the opponent's spirit. Teammates didn't necessarily like being snapped at, but they marveled at playing alongside such transcendent basketball. And of course, they liked the championships that came from sharing the court with the GOAT. We speak today, of course, of Diana Taurasi, the subject of this week's record. This was a sheer coincidence, we should point that out. We'd mapped out this season of podcast subjects weeks ago, but it's fitting we're talking about Taurasi within days of the conclusion of The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. The parallels, they're unavoidable. Everyone, from Gino Oriyama to Sue Bird to most recently DeAndre Ayton, has called Taurasi the Michael Jordan of the WNBA. Taurasi was born in 1982, the year Jordan won a national championship at UNC, and she grew up in Southern California, so she identified more with Kobe than anyone else, the white mamba she called herself. And yet, she's wired like both Kobe and Michael. Here's a quote from Deadspin 2018. This is Tarasi. I always say that I know I'll be done playing basketball when I stop fighting on the floor. If you don't play with that edge or that competitive spirit, you're just another player out there. I can only speak for myself, but when I don't play with that fight, I'm just ordinary. For the record, Tarasi's still out there playing and fighting and not remotely ordinary. A few weeks from turning age 38, she still plays for the Phoenix Mercury, the same team that drafted her with the number one pick in 2004. Last season, Tarasi had back surgery, but in 2018, her last full season, she was still putting up 20 points a game. When and if this season begins, she'll be adding to her haul as the WNBA's all-time leading scorer. 
She's also married to Phoenix's assistant coach, Penny Taylor. Like Jordan, and for that matter like Kobe, Tarasi's plot hasn't always moved in a straight line. Sports Illustrated has chronicled this peerless career, starting from before Tarasi arrived at UConn. But we also caught her on the dip, so to speak, during a period of introspection following some personal and professional disappointments, setbacks before the inevitable comeback. Which is where my colleague Jamie Lasanti takes over. In October 2009, Diana Taurasi had her hands full. The former Yukon star stood on a court covered in confetti in what was then known as the U.S. Airways Arena in Phoenix, clutching a championship trophy in one hand and an MVP award in the other. At age 27, she had just led the Phoenix Mercury to its second WNBA championship in two seasons. The moment marked yet another triumph for Taurasi, who had already won two Olympic gold medals with Team USA and three NCAA championships at Yukon. It was an incredible high point in an already illustrious career, but to get to that high point, to that on-top-of-the-world feeling, Tarasi had been through the lowest of lows. In the early morning of July 2nd, after a Mercury home win, Tarasi was pulled over for speeding and erratic driving. After a test revealed a blood alcohol level of 0.17, more than twice the legal limit, Tarasi was arrested and cited for DUI, extreme DUI, and speeding. As one of the few household names in the league, her arrest was headline news. What she didn't know then in 2009 was that the DUI arrest would not be her only moment of adversity. It was only the beginning of a string of unfortunate events that would threaten to unravel her career right in the middle of the best season of her life. After the DUI charges and a day in jail, the murder of a coach and a man she called Papa would follow. So would a positive drug test. And it's at that point in August 2011 where Sports Illustrated senior writer Kelly Anderson found herself in the backseat of a car headed 40 miles south of Phoenix sitting next to Diana Taurasi. I had started covering women's Final Fours probably back in 1993 when Cheryl Swoops started that. And so I had been there for Diana's freshman year as at the Final Four. And um, every year that she played in that throughout her career at UConn, I had covered that Final Four. So I saw her as a freshman and when the, on the three years that they won. Following that, I covered her at the Athens Olympics and the Beijing Olympics. And I cover her at a handful of WNBA games. So I was definitely a familiar face to her. Um, and she was seven seasons into her uh, professional career at that point. The title of your 2011 story in SI is The Trials of Diana Taurasi. So it's, of course, about the string of unfortunate events that she had experienced. So first, a DUI arrest in 2009, and then the murder of her coach in Russia, Shabtai Kalmanovich, who was very much like a father figure to her. And then, of course, there was 
the positive drug test and the possible suspension that was along with that. So what was it like to cover all of these events in her life? And what was it like interviewing Tarasi about them? So the situation was I had gone down to Phoenix um, to get some one-on-one time with her. And the only one-on-one time the Phoenix Mercury people could find for us was um, during a 45-minute to one-hour drive down to a a community outreach event where the the team would be practicing at the Akchin Indian Community Center. And so uh, my time with Diana was in the backseat of this little sedan that someone from the Mercury staff was driving down to um, this event. So Diana and I sat in the back. It was a tiny little car. She was always kind of like coiled, like she's ready to go play. I mean, she had a, a weird combination of being both chill, but also ready to go and and, and um, uncoil. So anyway, we sat in the back of this this car and um, she had had a number of shocks to her system, I would say, in the last maybe 18 months. And of course, there was probably some small talk before we got into, yeah, tell me about your drunk driving arrest. And I think she's just used to, you know, she's a pro and she knows how these these interviews go. And so she's, you know, was ready for these questions. So when we did get around to talking about her, her DUI, you know, I think that was a really painful experience for her. So what happened was she had been coming, she had a bunch of people in her car and she'd been coming back from a bar or a party and she'd been pulled over for erratic driving uh, you know, she was more than um, twice the legal limit. And she had like three, she had DUI and extreme DUI, a bunch of really scary um, charges against her. And I think some of which got dropped eventually, but she did end up having to spend time in jail. And there was a lot of bad press about this. I mean, it made headlines, of course, because she was the face of women's basketball. And um, I think it was terribly embarrassing to her. And she um, she had to spend uh, 24 hours in jail. And I think that was a really difficult but life-changing moment for her where she, she realized like making bad choices that put your life into somebody else's control is something she really didn't want to do again. That was a really difficult time, and it's she had served her time, I think, in October of of two thousand nine, and then went to to Russia to to play her fourth season with Moscow Spartak. I think before the season started, she had gone to her the owner of her team, this guy Shabtai um, Ben Kolmanovich. Um, she was there to with some teammates to pick up Beyonce tickets. And um, he wasn't there, and the driver, his driver came back, had terrible news that he had been murdered in a professional hit. And that was just this terribly stunning event as well. And I think, you know, that was, a, that was another shock to her system. We talked about that. She finished out that season, and then the next professional season, she went to Turkey, thinking that would be a, a, a good change of pace. During her time there, she had um, she got uh, told that she had been tested positive for a banned substance, 
modafinil and that she was basically being kicked off the team, suspended from the team. Um, and of course, this positive test also could could have been banished her from the sport for two years. She had no idea. She had she didn't even know how to pronounce this this banned substance. She Googled it, found out it was um, something to battle narcolepsy, to keep pilots awake when they're flying, which is all stuff that was just absurd um, to think that Diana Tarazi would ever take this stuff because she's just, she's all on all the time. She eventually, after spending a great deal of money, got this this positive test overturned. And there were three other, what, what turned out to be the the issue, the lab had uh, made mistakes. There were a lot of false positives coming out of this lab and the lab basically withdrew all their positive tests. We talked about all of that in the 45 minute drive down to um, south of Phoenix <laughs> to move on one, from one subject to another. It's not, it's not ideal, but that's sometimes all the time you get when you're talking to, um, to big stars. And of course, along that ride, you not only talk to her about all these events, but what she learned from them. That string of unfortunate events and, and troubles and trials all gave her a new perspective on basketball. And it also gave her a new perspective on her relationship with the sport. So she said in your story, she said it made her realize, quote, that basketball is everything, yet it isn't everything. It's such a profound quote especially for someone who wasn't at the end of her career at that point. Yeah. And I think she took some time off after that. She didn't go back to Turkey, even though she was reinstated into her team after um, uh, the, the drug test was overturned. She took time off and actually for probably the first time in her entire adult life, she um, got to, to kick back in the spring. She went to the final four for the first time and, five years. Um, and, and she kind of enjoyed herself, got to, to heal some nagging injuries a bit. And I think realized like, yeah, there is life after basketball and, and I might be able to handle it when my time comes to retire. Um, I, I can find things to occupy myself and, um, you know, I'll be good. I'll be good. It won't be the end of the world when I do have to, to stop playing. And fortunately she didn't have to stop playing right then, which was was um, actually a threat if this positive test hadn't been overturned. She would have missed the the London Olympics um, and probably a, a couple pro seasons as well. She was really open with you about when she was talking about what she was going to do after basketball. So, you know, in the quote that she said to you, she was really she really said that she realized, "Am I going to sit here and be miserable and be depressed when I'm done playing, or am I going to figure out a life?" without basketball and be okay with that. And, you know, athletes are very open about talking about their mental health now, but I don't think it was something as common back then. So was that surprising for you to learn? Yeah, actually it is, you know, it's interesting. It, it is a little surprising from Diana um, because she was always so her public persona was so much nothing really bothers me, even though I don't think that was ever true, um, that she, things just rolled off her back. You know, that was, that was something she was known for, whether that really reflected what was going on inside her or not, I don't know. But, but for her to 
admit that, yeah, I, I was depressed. I didn't get out of bed for weeks. I was, I, I, I was miserable. And I think part of the misery was not just not being able to play the game. I imagine part of it was just the stress of the unknown of, of, um, you know, this, this mark against her that she had nothing to do with. Um, so I think there was probably a lot of things going on, but yeah, I think her, her talking about it, um, because she's not someone who really spilled her guts in my experience, you know, that was not, um, part of her, her public, um, posture. And, um, yeah, so and I I don't know that 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 was easy for her to say actually that that this was something that that really brought her down cuz she really is such an upbeat person all the time. That is what um one of her hallmarks I think. And so to feel uh you know down in you know really really severely down in the dumps um is is that uh, was probably hard for her to admit to. In your 2011 story, Dee described herself as a kind-hearted asshole, uh, you know, when she's on the court about wanting to get everyone involved. Why did you include that? I, I thought it was such an interesting self-description for someone to say, um, especially for someone like Diana. I think um, one of the things about Diana is that she is a great teammate. I think people um, love playing for her. Um and I think uh, her coach, Gino Ariema, would say that, you know, this is everything you want to have in a teammate. That's Diana. That's also everything you don't want to have to play against. But she she treats everybody uh, that's in her circle, that's on her team. She has their back. And, you know, sometimes she probably has to, to get on their case a little bit. But she's she's just at heart a really nice person, too. And she... She will. She she sees where there are gaps in things. I think like, you know, this maybe this teammate needs the ball to to make a a basket, or this person you know needs to a, a little applause coming off the bench, or she, you know she sees where there's a gap and she fills it. And I think that's a a great talent she has. Um, and she doesn't see anything beneath her. You know, like she she would hand out water to her her olympic teammates i mean she fetched muffins for lisa leslie when she was a rookie on the olympic team she um so you know part of that most of that probably she's not really being an asshole but she's not afraid to be if it's 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 about getting people included and i think her sister talked about how this was something that came from her dad that her dad uh was really about everybody having a good time you know, this is, this is, we want to, everybody to be included. And like, she's a host. I think that's really maybe it, what, what Diana is at heart is she's a, a dinner host, a basketball host, a party host, whatever. She's, she wants you, if you're in her company, she wants you to have a good time, whether you're playing on the court or just hanging out at, at a picnic table, that's, that's, and that's just something that's really hardwired in her. And I think, her sister said that came from her dad. That was important to him. I love that. She's a, she's a good host. I love that. There's a line in your story where you reference Diana's skills and her vision and her competitive drive. And you say how they draw comparisons to, from her to basketball greats like Larry and Michael and Magic and all these players who 
can only go by one name. So she, she was also very, very confident about how she would do in the men's game. Tell us a little bit more about those comparisons, about how they came to be at that time in her career and how they've held up nearly 10 years later to today. Um, well, I think the the two players she was compared to most, at least in my uh, experience, was Magic Johnson because she was a great playmaker. She was a, a terrific passer. And she really delighted in, in getting her teammates involved. Um, you know, she didn't have to, when she had to, she would score. But if she didn't have to, she was just as happy to get her other teammates, you know, to get assists and get a, her other teammates involved. And I think that was kind of a, a magic quality. And she was also really fun to watch her do that. She was a amazing, she is an amazing passer. Um, in terms of Michael Jordan, I think the comparisons um, run along the lines of she had this, she just has this amazing competitive drive and will to win. And she makes things happen. She, she sees what's missing on the court or what our team needs to do to, to win this game. And she, uh, she does it or, or makes it happen somehow. Um, she certainly wasn't that kind of wow, wow your socks off athlete where, you know, I don't think she was a dunker ever. Um, she wasn't particularly fast, but she was very strong and very graceful. Um, and she just, you know, had incredible basketball smarts and um, all of the things that added up to being the greatest player of all time in her, in her particular sport. And even recently, UConn coach Gina Oriema and Sue Bird, who, of course, another WNBA great compared Tarasi to Michael Jordan specifically, especially in terms of his competitive nature and mindset. So exactly what you mentioned, that sort of all or nothing mentality. And we've all been watching The Last Dance and got a, you know, a lens into Michael and how he was with his teammates and how he could be really hard on his teammates. Um, but it was always there, you know, because he wanted to win. And Diana had a very similar quality in terms of that. Did you get that sense when you were covering her, especially um, during this time when she was going through so much off the court? Well, first of all, I'd say that, that uh, as I spoke to you a little bit earlier, the, the difference with Michael, I think she addressed this when, when Ariama and Sue we're talking about her that as a teammate, she was a really different kind of character. She was, again, maybe that kind hearted asshole that she was, she was, it was for her, it was about getting people involved and, and making sure, sure everybody's on your side and okay. You know, in terms of whether I saw that in my reporting, in terms of her, uh, that competitive drive, again, you know, you'd see it on the court every day. Not so much necessarily um, off the court, um, but they, they, you know she, she was kind of wound up in a lot of ways. You always feel like she was she was ready to go out and and play and maybe prove something. Although she was also so very, she had a weird laid back quality as well as being like intense. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about her is she was so confident in her abilities, but also really lovable. Like she had it. I don't think every there. That's a really rare combination. I think people who are really good at what they do and really confident and sort of cocky about it are often really off putting. And she just isn't, at least to those people, again, who are on on her team. 
we talk about Michael and magic and the comparisons there, but Diana has also, you know, put herself in the same conversation as players today, like Steph Curry or others where she sort of says, I can do that too, you know, or this is what I do. I do the same thing in, in a WNBA game. And so reflecting back now in 2020, nearly 10 years after writing your story, what are your thoughts about her legacy in the sport of basketball as a whole, you know, with, with the NBA players and the WNBA players? Well, one of the things, I mean, she said this in my story about, um, you know, she gets asked a lot, well, how would you do in the men's game? And she said, you know, give me a man's frame and I think I'd do okay. And, and, um, uh, the Seattle Storm coach said, you know, she's actually being modest. There were there are so many NBA teams that would love to have a player with her instincts that she really, again, as a basketball mind, as a basketball player, there really isn't any, you know, are there anybody, are there many players better than her at, at any level of the game? I mean, she doesn't have a man's frame, so she doesn't have that physicality. But um, and I do think the very best players in the men's game really respect her and they recognize that in her, that she is just um, like the LeBrons and Steph Curry's recognize a kindred spirit, a kindred um, talent. And so she is one of them. And I think we saw that in the memorial service for Kobe when she got up to give a little talk. She had known Gianna. um, I think uh, Kobe had brought her to a practice, uh, a Phoenix Mercury practice at one point, And she recognized that, that look on her face of, of being, of wanting the game. She just loved it. I think she, you know, Diana recognized that, that kind of passion, but she also was a really skilled young player. And in this talk that Diana gave, she, she mentioned uh, something about how, how, you know, what, how skilled Gianna was and, you know, who has a turnaround step back at 11. And then she kind of makes this aside, like LeBron, you know, barely has it today. And there were two things that went on there. She, she lightened the mood. So, you know, people laughed and, and, and she saw an opportunity and a need to lighten the mood in the room. So she did that, but she also signaled like, yeah, I can tease LeBron because I'm in his class. Everybody there recognizes that she's, She's one of them. She is in that same class of basketball player as Kobe and LeBron and Steph Curry. Um, So that was really kind of a cool moment to watch. That greatest of all time GOAT designation gets thrown around a lot when it comes to Diana. And I think the most important thing that she, of course, came to realize uh, when you spoke to her about all of these trials that she went through was that there is a life for her after basketball and she needs to figure out what that is. And so while she may have come to that realization, you know, 10 years ago, when you spoke to her, she's still been playing all this time. And just recently she, you know, made it clear and made it known that she one day wants to own a WNBA team. And maybe that is her path after her career. And after she retires, you know, she's challenged the fact that there is a lack of women investing in sports and she's really emerging as a outspoken leader in that way. After all of your time covering her and everything she's been through, what do you think her place is among the greats? What do you think it will be? Um, And what do you, what do you see for her legacy given that she may not be done just yet? 
Well, I think she is the greatest of all time. And she has a a record of accomplishments that's going to be really hard uh, for anyone to surpass. I'm not saying that won't happen, but I, I don't think we're going to see that surpassed anytime soon. And I do think she will stay involved uh, in basketball, maybe, not, you know, even when she's done playing. And I'd love to see her own a team. And I, and I don't know, she's made a lot of money, uh, especially compared to other female basketball players. I don't know how she's invested it, but um, I, that would be great if she had the opportunity to, to own a team and maybe encourage other women to do likewise. I think she makes a really good point that, you know, where are all the women supporting this? Where, where you know, they, they need to be, get more involved and, and this is our, our thing. Let's make this happen. So I think that's a really exciting path for her potentially, if she goes ahead with that, I think she could, she would do really interesting things with the team as an owner. And I think it would give her that sense of control that she so clearly wants to keep in her life after going through the DUI experience. She would be a really interesting um, voice at the uh, executive level on any team. The same passion we all recognize in Kobe, obviously, Gigi inherited. Her skill was undeniable at an early age. I mean, who has a turnaway fadeaway jumper at 11? LeBron barely got it today. That was great, Jamie. That was a great deep dive. Let's start with the obvious. It's probably the recency effect, but I read Kelly's piece and the parallels to Michael Jordan just jumped off the page. Uh, it was hard for me not to see this all through the prism of Last Dance, but uh, that might just be me. What, what about you? Definitely. And it's funny because Kelly said that she hasn't had a TV in the house, so she hasn't really been watching. Um, she's only been reading recaps and you know hearing things from people, but I had the same feeling. And I thought it was so interesting that you know even after the last episode, all of a sudden, if you kept your TV on, Diana Taurasi was there as well, you know, and as you said in in your intro, this was something that kind of was happenstance. We didn't we didn't plan on that. But the parallels are there, especially in terms of the mentality. And, you know, recently, Gino Oriama and Sue Bird compared Taurasi to MJ. And I think that all or nothing mentality, um, you know, it's it's a lot of athletes have it, but we saw how intense it was with Michael. And I think Diana had a lot of those qualities. I think one thing that she differentiated herself from Michael was about how hard she was on her teammates. I think, you know, we talk about the kind hearted asshole line in, in Kelly's story. And I think that really sums up um, who she was as a teammate, as a player. And I really liked how Kelly portrayed her as wanting to be a really great host. She said that she really wants to please everyone and she wants everyone to have a good time and she wants to make the experience great for everyone. And that's similar to Michael in a way, but it's a little less intense uh, than we saw in The Last Dance. I couldn't help but think that Scott Burrell uh, was, was a UConn player as was Diana Taurasi. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, this was sort of the, if this was behind the, you know, if this was behind the music, this was the segment when the band ha had some problems and got into a dark space. 
Um, so we talked in the story about Diana Taurasi and, and the DUI and the, the doping test, which ended up not sticking and I don't think stains her, her legacy at all. But um, I mean, the sort of the, the third element to that was the murder of the owner of her Russian team and what was clearly a mob hit. I mean, this was a colorful figure, a convicted KGB spy. I wonder if in your deep dive or talking to Kelly, having your owner uh, murdered on what was clearly an underworld, a mob hit, um, what, what impact that had? We did talk about that a little bit. I think what was interesting about that was that was an additional thing that happened in the course of these two, three years that was not on her own doing. It was almost like she was trying to you know, recover from the DUI. She had served her time in jail and she was trying to get better. And then all of a sudden, a person who is almost like a father figure to her is murdered. And, you know, Kamanovich treated Tarasi like royalty. I mean, they had lavish lifestyles when they played for him. And, you know, that experience was very complicated. And I think after everything came out about Chabtai and his murder and his life, um, you know, those feelings were even more complicated. But it's a really interesting thing because it's not something that she did, but in her ways where she was trying to get better and she was trying to reflect on her life and figure out what she was going to do both to get back on the court and, you know, get over these shortcomings that she had, then all of a sudden this happened and it was something completely out of her control. And it's almost like, you know, any death in the family, it's something that's really hits you deep in the core and, you know, you have to deal with it. And it's an emotional baggage that you have to carry along with everything else that she was dealing with. And then the positive drug test came. So it's, it's something that will definitely be a marker in her life. Um, And I think it just speaks to, you know, as a WNBA player, they're going overseas to play. And it's something that not, you know, not NBA players don't have to deal with that. And they had these unique experiences there. Obviously, with Shabtai, it was a very crazy story. I wonder, I mean, you're, I think you're right that lost in that, it's why is Diana Taurasi the, the greatest women's basketball player? What's she doing playing for a Russian oligarch? What is she doing playing for a team in Turkey where, you know, do- doping specimens are being mishandled? And the answer is because you're supplementing your income because the WNBA's wages don't cover what you need. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if you know to what, to what extent is that still a thing? I mean, to what extent are the best players in the WNBA still moonlighting as basketball players in all over the world, uh, supplementing their income. Well, it's great that, of course, um, only a few months ago, earlier this year, the WNBA players got the new CBA and, you know, they are now able to earn more than $500,000 annually um, and salaries are going to climb. Um, So there's it was such a really big win. Um, I think it was something like 53% pay raise. So I think to your point, um, you know, people will still play overseas. You know, that that does happen with NBA players who may have fallen out of the league or G League or whatever it is. But the WNBA made a really big bet on their players. And they're really, um, you know, it's a really big win for those women to get such a big salary increase uh, under the new bargaining agreement. Diana Taurasi is almost 38 years old. Um, She intends to play this season if and when there is a WNBA season. 
But, you know, re- retirement certainly uh, is coming. I wonder if, if Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan are two very different models about how an athlete with, with that kind of drive transitions into retirement. Any sense of what uh, the, the post-basketball chapter looks like for Diana Taurasi? As we talked about with Kelly, she has ambitions for owning a WNBA team, whether or not the finances of that or, you know, how long she keeps playing for to deter that from happening in in the coming years. I don't know. But the fact that she has pointed out that there are not a lot of women investing in sports and she doesn't just mean women's sports, she means sports in general. I love how Kelly talked about Diana wanting to be an owner and how it really played into her wanting to be that host. She wants to have control. And so I think in that position, you know, she's not taking the coaching route. She wants to be in in the hot seat. She wants to be making the decisions and she wants to be really making sure everything is good for her players. And that's a really important thing, but it's a thing that only people with certain qualities can do. And I think Diana has that. Can I tell you a quick funny story? Of course. In 2002, I want to say, um, I was assigned to spend a week on the road with the WNBA team, the Cleveland Rockers, and they were fantastic. And one of my favorite players who uh, was a great source and subject was Penny Taylor, who is now Diana Taurasi's spouse. And one of the one of the subjects we talked about was sort of the ownership of WNBA teams and how it's great the NBA is throwing their marketing muscle behind this and they can use the gym and the training facilities in the summer when, when the boys are away. Um, but for the WNBA really to take that next step, it needed separate ownership. It needed women's ownership. It needed to detach itself from, from the WNBA and survive on its own. So uh, that was almost 20 years ago. It's more than a little ironic that A, that seems to be coming to pass and B, that uh, Diana Taurasi is now married to the player who 18 years ago was telling me all that. <laughs> that is really funny. And, you know, Penny Taylor has an interesting role in all of this with Tarasi because their friendship and their relationship started to evolve when they were both in these difficult times. So when Tarasi had the DUI arrest and, you know, then a year or so later, she had the legal battle with the the wrong positive drug test. At the same time, Penny Taylor was going through a divorce. And so the two of them were going through a really hard time and they connected during that time and really, you know, became friends. And ultimately we know they got married and now they are together. Um, But I think it's just a really interesting thing how somebody so competitive on the court, you know, really everyone needs someone to lean on. It sounds cheesy and it sounds corny, but they really help each other in times of their lives where they needed it. Um, Diana Taurasi has come a long way in nine years. Um, again, we, we sort of caught her, caught her at a bit of a low moment, but she has, uh, certainly responded and rebounded from that. Uh, Jamie, that was great. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, that does it for this week. I'm John Wertheim. This is Sports Illustrated. It's The Record. You can subscribe to The Record on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review and we'll have another episode, another deep dive next week. Our episode today was produced by Jamie Lasanti. Alex Hampel is a supervising producer on the project and edited today's episode. Our executive producer is Scott Brody. SI's director of digital projects and product is Ben Eagle. 
He's also a new dad this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.